Are you who you say you are? Are you possibly a practical atheist? This month, the month of August, we're going to be looking for four weeks at that big question, what is a practical atheist, and maybe am I a practical atheist? And I want to just give you a little bit of background how I arrived at this point of doing these four sermons this month. I read a book last spring at the re- recommendation of a, of a pastor friend entitled The Christian Atheist by a preacher by the name of Craig Groeschel. Um, bought it on my Kindle, read it in about two days. It just really grabbed me. And it really asks the question, are we who we claim to be? Are you who you claim to be? Or have we slipped into what he calls Christian atheism, practical atheism? And I want to put that scripture up on the screen, Second Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5, if you don't have your Bible, grab a pew Bible. You can find 2 Timothy 3 on page 1179 in your pew Bible. But let me just read that for you one one more time. Paul says to Timothy, mark this, there'll be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then this tag phrase here, having a form of godliness but denying its power. The New Living Translation has that last phrase translated like this. They'll act as if they are religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. And so as we look at that, just think of the world in which you live. Think of DeWitt County 2011. Think of the state of Illinois 2011. Think of the the, the United States of America 2011. Our world 2011. Would it be fair to say that are, people are lovers of themselves? I think so. Are people lovers of money? Are people boastful? Are they proud? Check, 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 check. The list could go on and on and on. And it makes me wonder if many of us have not fallen into the trap of what we're going to call practical atheism. You may wonder, what what is your definition of a practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives his life, lives her life, as if God doesn't exist. They believe in God, but they live their life as if he doesn't exist. Gallup did a poll four years ago. A couple thousand Americans were surveyed. 94% claimed to believe in God or another higher power. 94%. That's almost 19 out of every 20 people. And so let me ask those of you that live in Clinton, Illinois, would you say that 19 out of every 20 people in Clinton, Illinois, live their lives as a Christ follower? Those of you that work maybe in cities like Bloomington Normal, Decatur, Champaign-Urbana, Springfield, Peoria, wherever it may be, Do 19 out of every 20 people that you encounter live the life of a Christ follower? Or have many people adopted this practical atheism? Well, you're sitting there, I know you are, and you're thinking, you know, man, church is supposed to be upbeat. We had this great worship service, and the joy of the Lord is my strength, and man, your first seven minutes are depressing. 
They're discouraging. So let's have a little fun this morning, shall we? How many of you like to eat at all-you-can-eat buffets? Don't be afraid. Raise your hands, okay? You know, we've got the Old Country Buffet, I believe. Um, We've got the MCL Cafeteria in Springfield. Growing up as a kid, my favorite place to go, my great Aunt Ruby would take me to Bishop's Buffet at the Marketplace Mall in Champaign-Urbana. I love the Bishop's Buffet because here's the really cool thing about going to a buffet is there's literally a hundred different options and you can take what you want and you can pass on what you don't like. And as a kid, you know, your mom puts the plate in front of you. You've got to eat it all. If there's peas on the plate, you've got to find a way to eat those peas. As hard as it is, you're trying to eat those peas. But you go to the all-you-can-eat buffet, you eat what you want, you pass on what you don't like. So you're going through the meat line, give me some roast beef. Give me some fried shrimp. Give me some roasted chicken. You go to the potato, uh, the, the part of the buffet where the potatoes are, you can probably pick between mashed potatoes and gravy and baked potato and au gratin potato. Some of you are probably getting all three, right? You're getting a little bit of all three. Then you've got all the vegetables. I pass that. I just walk right on by. But some of you, it's corn or green beans or broccoli or asparagus or peas, whatever it may be. And then you get to my favorite part of the all-you-can-eat buffet, the desserts. I love the desserts. And you can pick between something like tapioca pudding. Why anybody would eat that, I don't know, but it's there. You've got chocolate pudding. You've got banana cream pie. You've got chocolate cream pie. And there's usually a cobbler of some sort, maybe a peach or a cherry or an apple with some ice cream on top. Now, we're getting hungry right now, aren't we? We really are. We're getting hungry. Don't worry. We'll be out on time. Um, We love the buffet-style restaurant. Many of us do. Now, I will give you this little warning. Don't go at 4, 4.30. That's rush hour for a lot of these places. Late afternoon is rush hour. But it's a really, really great place to do. Now, here's what this has to do with the message today. Many people today have adopted this, I believe in God, I'm living my life like he doesn't exist. They have adopted a buffet faith. And so they take their Bible and they read through God's Word. And the last two weeks before today, we were studying the grace of God. And they read that and they go, yes, I like that. I like the grace of God. I'll take some grace. And they read a little bit further in the New Testament. And maybe they read in the book of Revelation like Jim read from us today about the hope of heaven. The victory Christians are going to experience. And they're like, yes, I am all over that. I want the hope. They get to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. Oh my goodness, we've got to put down the love. But then maybe they go a little bit further and they get to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. And those are the two chapters in the New Testament that have the most extensive teaching about giving about stewardship, the call to be sacrificial givers and generous givers and cheerful givers. And so they draw a big line right here and they put their black pen down and they say, you know, giving? I don't think so. I'm not really going to be into that. And maybe they read a little bit further about the call to put your faith into action. And they start thinking about things like serving in a ministry or maybe going on a short-term mission trip or something along the lines. And Man, that just might cramp my style, so I'm not sure service is going to be a part of my faith. And they read a little bit later about the coming judgment, about the fact that Jesus is coming again, and he's going to judge 
everyone, the living and the dead. And, you know, I'm okay with the grace and the hope and the love, but judgment? I'm not sure I really signed up for that. And before long, if you're not careful, you have developed an a la carte kind of faith. You've developed a buffet kind of faith. I'll take what I like, and I'll pass on what I don't, what makes me uncomfortable. In Psalm 36, we see this description of people that have embraced this lifestyle. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or to hate sin. And so I have really a a word that you will leave today. If you're paying attention, this word will be burned into your mind when you leave here today. And I want to introduce it in the form of a question. Are we called to fear God? Are we called to fear God? You have to participate. If you are two years of age or older, you have to raise your hand right now to one of two of these questions. Question number one is, is it a good thing to fear God? Raise your hand if you think it is. Is it a bad thing to fear God? Raise your hand. What do you think? Well, you know the really cool thing about it? Here's the really cool thing about it is you could find a couple hundred places in the Bible where you see this command, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not fear, for I am with you. 200 times we see this command, do not fear. But as I think you're going to see today, from the very beginning of the Bible, from the Pentateuch, all the way up through the New Testament, the call is on the, the hearts and the lives of God-fearers, of Christ followers, to live in the fear of the Lord. Let me give you six examples real quickly this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy is an awesome book. It's the second giving of the law. And in Deuteronomy 5, you've got the Ten Commandments that are given. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, some awesome theology that we love. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But before we even get to any of that in chapter 6, we see this command at the very beginning. It says, these are the commands, decrees, and the laws the Lord your God directed me, Moses, to teach you to observe in the land you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so you may enjoy long life. The Israelites, they've been living in the desert for 39 plus years, almost 40 years. They're getting ready to enter into the land flowing with milk and honey, the promised land, and as they get ready to do that, Moses says, oh by the way, the Lord told me this, fear the Lord your God and keep his commands so you can live and live a prosperous life. Scripture number two, Joshua 24. That's at the end of maybe the bloodiest book in all of the Bible, the book of Joshua. It's a book of conquest. It's God's people taking the promised land. And at the very end, Joshua, the leader of the people, he's about ready to die. He's about ready to go to be with the Lord and with his fathers before him. And he has these parting words for God's people. Fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Does that sound familiar? Sounds a lot like Deuteronomy 6, Scripture 3, 1 Samuel chapter 12. 
Samuel was the leader of God's people for a very long time. But God's people were not content with Samuel the prophet. What did they want? They wanted a king. And so God finally gave in and said, fine, I'm going to give you a king. And as Samuel's getting ready to pass the torch, Saul's getting ready to become king, Samuel has these parting words, be sure to, what's that say? Fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Deuteronomy 6, Joshua 24, 1 Samuel 12, fear the Lord and serve him. Fear the Lord, obey his commandments. I see a trend developing. In the book of Job, we're not going to study the book of Job for time's sake this morning, but listen to this description of Job. Job 1.1, it says, Job was blameless and upright. What did he do? He feared God and he shunned evil. And as bad things happened to him, I mean really bad things happened to him, he kept that fear of the Lord. Scripture 5, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 2, Solomon writing this, gives kind of a summary statement before he even begins. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. I grew up in a university town. I grew up in a community where the quest for knowledge was supreme in so many ways. Even in our high school, in our our middle school, we were driven to know, to acquire knowledge. And yet Solomon says the fear of the Lord, that's the beginning of all knowledge. And then in Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon, if we don't know a lot about his life, you don't know a lot about his life, he was the third king of Israel. And during his reign, Israel's, um, Israel expanded greater than any time in their history. They occupied more land. They accumulated more wealth than any other time written in God's word or since then for that matter. And Solomon had it all. He had 700 wives. Wrap your brain around that for a little. 700 wives? The greatest wine that was available in the day was his. Possessions? There was nothing that he didn't accumulate and have that he could call his own. And yet at the end of the day, here's his conclusion of the matter. It's all been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Do you see a trend? Fear the Lord, keep his commands. Fear the Lord, keep his commands. I want to share with you this morning quickly two Old Testament examples that I think show us either why it's good to fear the Lord or the danger of not fearing the Lord. So grab your Bibles, and if you have your pew Bible, turn to page 19, Genesis chapter 22. It gives us the story of Abraham and Isaac. How many of you have ever heard of the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham was a guy that God really had a heart for. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, God tells him, Abraham, you're going to be a nation and a land and a blessing. And that's an awesome promise. It's an unconditional covenant promise. But you know what's funny about that promise? Is he's making that promise to a man that has no kids. He has no children. And you're going to make him a nation and a land and a blessing? But that's the promise in Genesis 12. And by the time we get to Genesis 22, it's late in Abraham's life. He has become a father very late in life. He had a child with his wife, Sarah, who, who was thought to be barren. It's a miracle from the Lord. And at the age of a hundred, he finds himself a father. And his most prized possession, the thing that he was most passionate about, was his son he'd waited his whole life to meet, Isaac. 
And yet in Genesis 22, the Lord says to him, Abraham, you're going on a journey and you're going to build an altar and you're going to sacrifice your son to me. Let me say that again. You're going to sacrifice your son to me. I mean, I've got my son in church with us today. I just look at him and, and tears start to well up even thinking about having a decision like that. But in Genesis 22, Abraham did exactly what the Lord told him to do. And he took his son up on the journey. He told the servants to wait at the foot of the hill, went up, built an altar, laid his son down on the altar, took his knife out, raised his knife to slay his son. And in verse 11, we see the the word of the Lord call out, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Verse 12, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Catch this. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Let me read that again. Now I know you fear God. You fear me. And as the chapter unfolds in verse 17, this is really cool. Here's the promise continuing. The Lord says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Abraham feared the Lord. Well, now flip all the way to the middle of your Bible to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 36. In Jeremiah chapter 36, we see the account of King Jehoiakim of Judah. And I need to just give you this little tidbit. This is a very dark time in the history of God's people. The kingdom has split. The northern kingdom has been overrun by the Assyrians, a brutal people. The southern kingdom is just almost done The Lord's just about finished with them. The nation of Babylon has overcome Assyria, and they're getting ready to to overthrow Judah. It will happen in about 20 years. This is about 605 B.C., and Jehoiakim is like most of the kings of Israel and Judah. This is the tag phrase to describe him. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what's really tragic about Jehoiakim is that his dad, Josiah, King Josiah, he became king like the age of eight. And he led some great time of reform through the entire kingdom. Great things took place during Josiah's reign. But son is not like father. And during Jehoiakim's reign, things go from decent, pretty good, to awful in a hurry. Well, the prophet Jeremiah gets a word from the Lord. And I'll read it for you, the beginning part of Jeremiah chapter 36, it says, Take a scroll, write on it all the words I've spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I begin speaking to you. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I will inflict upon them, each of them will turn from his wicked way, then I'll forgive their wickedness and their sin. So even the Lord, in the height of his frustration toward his people, is hoping for repentance. He's hoping for a change. He's hoping for a turn. And so Jeremiah takes the word of the Lord and he grabs uh, the scribe Baruch and Baruch writes it all down. 
And they take this word from the Lord, this oracle, this proclamation, and they go to the city on a day of fasting, and Baruch starts to read this scroll. He reads this prophecy. He reads this oracle, and all the common people are gathered around. And when the common people hear it, they are moved. And one of the king's uh, servants hears it and says, the king has to hear this. So he goes and he gets the king's inner circle, and they gather together and jump down to verse 15. Verse 15, he says, sit down, please, read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. Verse 16, when they heard all these words, they looked at each other in fear and said to Baruch, we must report all these words to the king. And so the inner circle gathers together, and they go to the king's palace, and it's wintertime, it's the ninth, ninth month, it's cold outside, so the king's in his winter apartment, and he's got a big fire pot in the middle of this apartment. And what this basically was, it was a, it was a huge fire pit in many ways, and they would bring in coals, and they would keep the hot coals burning 24-7. So in the very coldest of days, coldest of nights, the king could find warmth. So the king says, bring in the scroll, read me the scroll, as he sits by his fire pot warming himself. Look at verse 23. It says, whenever Jehudai had read three or four columns of the scroll, the king would cut them off with the scribe's knife and threw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was burned in the fire. The king And all his attendants who heard these words, this is the scripture, showed no fear, nor did they tear their clothes. Proclamation from the Lord comes to the king. The Lord is hoping for repentance. And the king takes the word of the Lord and he takes out his scissors and he just cuts out a page from the Bible. And he reads a little bit further and he cuts out a page from the Bible. <laughs> it was supposed to be a good illustration. Now, some of you are having a heart attack right now, aren't you? You're saying, how could you cut the Bible? Well, good news, it's really not a Bible. It's just a book. But here's the point. Here's the point that I want you to see. When you read God's Word that says it's God's will that you be sanctified, that you be holy, that you avoid sexual immorality, and then you go out and you live like a pagan, and you abuse your body in ways you shouldn't, you're basically taking God's word, taking scissors to it, cutting it right out. That's what King Jehoiada did, and I think that's what many of us do at times when we hear the word of the Lord. We read the word of the Lord, and it's not convenient for where we are. It's not convenient for the lifestyle that we have. And whether it's gossip, whether it's hatred, whether it's immorality, whether it's abusing a substance that makes us act like an idiot, whatever it may be, we're taking God's word, and we're taking a scissor to it. We're taking a knife to it. And we're symbolically throwing it in the fire pot. My goal for you this morning is really simple. The goal of this entire message is truly fear God. 
Not in a, oh my goodness, I'm scared, I've got to hide kind of way. You've never seen that from a preacher before, have you? But in a, oh God, you are my God. I will forever praise you kind of way. And as I wrap up this morning, understand that when you truly fear God, at least three things will happen. Number one is this, you'll stand or maybe kneel in awe of Him. Some of you today, during our worship time, during that third song, when Jim began to, re- when he began to read the Word, some of you felt goosebumps, didn't you? Some of you sensed awe. And it was a cool experience. And maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Uh, maybe it was the power of the written word. But here's the thing. When you fear God, when I fear God, that will happen all the time. Maybe not the goosebumps, but as we live our life, we'll live, we'll stand, we'll kneel in awe of Him. Psalm 211 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The second thing that will happen to you is you'll serve Him wholeheartedly without any conditions. I bet it's happened to me 25 times in ministry. I've been visiting with someone who has not ever lived for the Lord. They've never made a decision to be a Christ follower. And they're digging the grace of God thing, and they're, they're digging the forgiveness of sins and the hope of heaven. And then the rubber really starts to hit the road when we start talking, what's this mean for my life today? And I've had people verbally say, you know, I'll, I'll be a Christian. But if you think I'm going to start giving to the church, forget that. I'll be a Christian, but if you think I'm going to stop sleeping with my girlfriend, you're kidding me. Give me a break. I'll be a Christian, but if you think I'm going to make a commitment every week to worship, come on. We've got a lake right out there. We've got too much to do. And when you truly fear God, you'll serve Him wholeheartedly without any conditions without any conditions john 14 verse 15 says if you love me you will obey what i command and then number three you'll be forever ruined in the best sort of way in the very best sort of way in isaiah 6 the prophet shares these words verse 5 he says woe to me i'm ruined For I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And three verses later, in verse 8, he says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. I've heard the testimony of people who said, 10 years ago, I never would have dreamed of taking a week of vacation and going on a mission trip. But that might be the best week of my year. I've heard that testimony this summer from some of you. 10 years ago, you would have never thought of taking one of the two or three weeks of vacation that you have and hanging out with junior hires or senior hires on a mission trip, but your testimony would be, that's week number one in my book this year. You're ruined in the very best sort of way god will change you in a way and you'll never want to go back and so the bottom line this morning really is pretty simple christ followers are called to live in the fear 
of the Lord. Again, not the, oh my goodness, I'm scared kind of fear, but that reverent, awesome spirit of, oh God, you are my God, I'll forever serve and worship and praise you. In Acts chapter 9, this isn't in your notes, this is extra. In Acts chapter 9, that's the account of Saul, he'd been persecuting Christians, and he is literally shown the light on the way to Damascus, and he goes from persecutor of Christians to the greatest missionary the church has ever seen, Saul to Paul. It's, it's an incredible chapter. And what's really cool is that after his conversion, many of the disciples, they weren't really buying his act. They thought it was a setup. They thought it was a game. And many of them were very resistant to him. And a guy by the name of Barnabas stepped forward. Barnabas, son of encouragement. And he reached out to him, and he loved him, and he bridged that gap. And before long, Paul is part of the fellowship. There's a great testimony at the end of that chapter. Kind of a summary statement of all that's taken place. And here's what it says. It says, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, and catch this, living in the fear of the Lord. And can I just tell you, I'd love to be able to insert First Christian Church of Clinton in that sentence right up there. I'd love to be able to say the first Christian church of Clinton enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers because we were living in the fear of the Lord. What's a practical atheist? Someone who believes in God but lives their life as if he doesn't exist. Can I tell you this morning, Jesus lives, God is alive. I, for one, fear him. I wake up every day ready to serve him. Will you join me as we boldly make a difference in Clinton, in the state of Illinois, and literally all around the world? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the difference your son Jesus makes. We love you. We thank you for um, the blessings of grace and hope and love. And we thank you for the opportunities to give and to serve. We love you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we come to this time, I, I want us to think about that idea. And I know Greg has mentioned it many, many times. And, and it's hard because we all struggle with it. We all, we all struggle with the desire to, to know Jesus. And we, we, we want to know Jesus and we want to love Jesus. Yet sometimes we, we step into the, to the other side, if you will, to the, to the side that, that just is, is not us, is not who we should be. And so this morning as we're singing our hymn of invitation, I hope that you will spend some time praying, spend some time talking to God. And if you have a decision to make this morning, if you want that decision to be public this morning, maybe, maybe you want to come forward and rededicate your life and you just haven't done it and you feel like that needs to be public, we'll be up front. But again, as always, most important decision, if you have a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to put him number one in your life and to just continue to fear him, this invitation is for you as well as we stand together and sing. Just as you are, hear the Spirit.
was standing up here this morning, I was just thinking about, you know, when one part of the body hurts, the whole body should hurt. And when one part of the body rejoices, the whole body rejoices. And so we're going to do something that we've not done in a long time. I'm just going to ask us all just to fill in. And we're just going to join hands and we're going to pray together as one big body together. Let's pray together. Father, there's something about being together. And Father, there's something about standing next to someone in agreement with them. And so, Father, we say thank you. Father, we thank you for other Christians who help us. We thank you for other people in this church and in this community who help us. And Father, we thank you so much for your love and your spirit that moves among us. Father, help us that we just might continue to come as we are to you, Father. Father, you don't care what's behind us. Father, help us that we just might live in fear of you. Help us that we just might grasp and hold on to that this week. Father, we love you, and we thank you so much for what you're doing. We continue to pray for Little Galilee this week, the last week. We pray that you will just bless the lives of those kids and adults this week. And Father, we'll give you the praise and glory until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.